You're listening to The Hour with Resident Advisor. The Hour! This, this is this, The this, Hour. You're listening to The Hour. This is The Hour with Resident Advisor. Hello and welcome to The Hour. This is RA's blend of documentaries, discussion, interviews and lots of other things besides. My name's Ryan Keeling and I'm the editor at Resident Advisor. Coming up on this month's show, Martha Pazienti Caden, the producer of The Hour, will be asking what sort of impact internet trolls are having on coverage of women in dance music. And a brand new version of Ableton Live, probably the most popular production software in electronic music, has just been released. RA contributor Graham Bateman went along to Ableton's Berlin offices to hear the inside story behind the new design. But first, what happens when you're a DJ and you lose your entire collection of music? We thought it would be fun, for us at least, to begin this month's show by hearing a few horror stories from some of our favourite artists. My name is Scratch DVA, and before I get into this story, I would like to give all my fellow DJs and musicians one piece of advice. Never leave your music at your partner's house because you never know how your relationship is going to go. So, I had a lot of records I've been collecting from school days. My girlfriend at the time, she used to have a lot of parties in her house for no reason. So we'd go down to her house and take the sound lab decks and just have a reason to have a rave. So I'd take all my records and it was getting annoying, like kept taking record bags and record cases because it wasn't even just bags and it was like cases. So I just started to leave all my records at her house. I went on this trip and there was another girl coming who she didn't like and it was a trip where I was going to be away for a few days and she just got all in up in her head that I was going to do something with this girl out of nowhere when I really really actually that time was not that's the maddest thing about it it was like the second day into this trip a few girls who I knew was on the phone and it looked like something bad had happened so I went over and like what's going on and they were like oh it's your girlfriend she she's been burgled I was like whoa I didn't even think of my records at the time I just thought is everyone okay so I took the phone like what's happened like is your mum okay what's good what's good she's like yeah she was crying yeah everything's fine everything's fine I was like oh what did they get it's like well they got all your records I was like oh man what else it's like well that's it that's all they took I was like what and I could just tell in her voice, the tone of voice she was lying. Anyway, after the trip finished, went straight down to her house and she was crying when she opened the door. I was like, what's happened? Like, what has happened? And she walked me to the garage, opened up the garage and there was this massive mountain of black plastic. She set all my records on fire. <laughs> the feeling, I hope no one ever, 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 ever feels that. Here's Magda. Yeah, one time my record, uh, box went missing for about six months and uh, it's kind of a funny story the way it started um, I was coming from a gig somewhere and landing in Amsterdam to do a festival they were trying to rush everybody into the van because um, it was time to go to the venue and so I went outside and it was kind of chaotic with a lot of people and cars and stuff so set my record box down screwed onto the van so on the way there um the driver was trying to figure out who's on what stage and asking everyone's name and they just couldn't find me and turns out i got in the wrong van to the wrong festival um needless to say it was super late i was already gonna miss my set most of it at least and then 
I went to change uh, vans to go to the right festival and my records were gone. So I'm like, oh my God, okay. What happened? Turns out that the records actually went in the right van to the right festival. So once I arrived at the right festival, um, ran to the stage, I had about half an hour, could have maybe savored some of my sets, but records were nowhere to be found. Um, so I didn't play at all. And yeah, I went around the venue looking for them different places finally on another stage I found them so I was very relieved even though I didn't get to play at least I had my records uh, so I flew back home to Berlin when I landed the records did not arrive <laughs> and they went missing for six months after that it was unbelievable no one knew their whereabouts they were not in the system nothing no news so I had totally given up and then six months later uh, they arrived with all the stickers from all over the world. So I don't really know where they were getting routed or to who or why, but they certainly had a nice vacation. Here's an extract of our exchange interview with Sasha. So I come out of the club and I put my record boxes in, there's a taxi waiting there. I put my record boxes in the back of the taxi and there's this crowd of people there and they were all clapping and I turn around to sort of take a bow and uh, somebody else got into the taxi and, and the taxi drove off. As I turned around, the taxi drove off with my records in it. And I was like, no! I started running after it and I think I got within about five feet of the car and the traffic light changed and it went round the corner and I chased it round the corner and there were like 20 yellow taxis there. And, I, and the, the light was on red, that light was on red. And I was like, oh, which one is it? Which one is it? And the light changed and they all went off in different directions. And I was like, fuck, gone. All my, all my acetates, everything, my, my, all my record collection was gone. I basically absolutely lost it. We went, um, we got invited back to someone's house and I'm sitting there virtually in tears. I'm like, what am we gonna do? I had a gig that night somewhere. So we came up with a plan. I was like, okay, we're gonna get, when the record shop opens at midday, uh, we're gonna go to the record shop, buy two new boxes. So I went to this record shop. I, I went through all the shelves. I bought the stuff that I sort of recognized and tried to cobble together what would be, you know, a set that I could play that night. I got back to my hotel room. I walk into my hotel room. My two record boxes are in my hotel room. <laughs> Thank God there was the baggage guy, as he checked me in, had written my name and the room number on the tag. And the taxi driver, being an angel, had returned them to the hotel. <laughs> and another exchange clip, this time with Honey Dijon. You just suffered, I guess, back last fall a bit of a, a setback, a bit of like every DJ's worst nightmare. What happened? Um, well, for the last 10 years that I've been living in New York, I just, you know, I, like most people, I have a really small space. And so I stored my record collection, which is probably every record that I've had since I was 10 years old. I've never thrown away a record. I wake up, the first thing I wake up, I get a phone call from Manhattan Mini Storage, which is where I store my stuff. They never, ever, 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 ever call. And then I'm like, okay, this is really weird. And they said, um, there's been an accident in your unit. There was a fire in a unit, a couple of units down from yours. Can you come down? And right then the red flag, just like I started to panic and freak out. I was like, oh shit, what, ha what happened? This, this does not feel right. A spark had gotten into another unit. It set off a, a small fire and the fire department was called. And it just so happened my unit had, was two doors down from where the fire started. And they just started spraying. And I think my heart just fell. 
I mean, it was just like watching my whole life. It was like, I don't know if people can experience, it's just like your whole being is just crushed in that one second. Like your like records that you've couldn't get second copies of. I mean, unless you collect vinyl, you have no idea. It's just like, there's like little moments of your life. It's like cells being the, just taken away out of your body. I really didn't have time to really sort of get too down about it. I just had to get in there and take care of business and save what I could. And I did a pretty good job. I called all my friends. So I literally had like 13 people taking wet paper off records and cleaning records with alcohol. And I had to get 100 proof alcohol. It was like the most insane thing. And it was like 12 hours a day for five days because I had to go and play Smart Bar. This happened on a Tuesday and I had to go play Smart Bar on a Sunday. So I had no time to fuck around. So. And, and were you able to recover any of these records? I was able to recover a lot of stuff, but a lot of stuff I had to throw away. To me, I was just needed to save things that had a lot of sentimental value to me. And that was my first order of business. And finally, here's Maceo Plex. Ten years ago, we moved to Spain, to Valencia, Spain. I had to put all my vinyl in the storage. Must have been at least two or three hundred crates, probably a few thousand records, and a lot of rare stuff. It was in the storage for maybe six months, um, all our stuff, billing to our bank card, our debit card. The bank uh, issued us a new card uh, and couldn't notify us because we were in Europe and the storage people couldn't charge our card anymore. After a month had lapsed, we finally found out that our card had uh, had been reissued because it was compromised. When we called the storage people, they said, oh no, we, we vacated your, your lot, we already sold it. And they had sold all my stuff, all my, uh, all my records and all my gear for $100. <laughs> they were able to call the guy and asked him if it was okay, they told us some details of what he did with the records. And he said he sold them at a, uh, at a record fair. Uh, I used to go by, by the name Eric Entity. They, they had the stamp on them. A lot of them had a stamp on them that I would stamp them and say, Eric Entity's fat record or whatever. And uh, I, never, I never did see any records. I've gone all over the world looking, looking through collections and, and stores and stuff, looking to see if I see any stamp anywhere that says Eric Entity on it. Never did. Uh, Never did find one. So I don't know where they ran it up. It was the, it was the worst uh, day of my life, pretty much. <laughs> I'm now going to hand over to Martha, the producer of The Hour, who's going to introduce you to a subject that's become very personal to her. You're listening to The Hour with Resident Advisor. This is Martha, producer of The Hour. Outside of Reset Advisor, I'm a DJ and major electronic music fan. Towards the end of 2017, the idea that I might be offered to do a set on Boiler Room started to brew. At first, I wasn't sure if I was ready. I'd seen a lot of DJs I admire get a lot of shit online just for being women and being DJs. Here's a few examples. Just another marketable female. From Jada G's Boiler Room at Deck Mantle. She could be on a toothpaste ad. Give Jada 1,000 euros worth of vinyl and bang. They're a DJ. Transparent as fuck. Peggy Goo's Mix Mag Lab. Fed up of these amateurs making a living from DJing. It's not fucking fair. Pair of tits and good marketing equals successful DJ. Pisses me right off. And makes a mockery of a scene I used to love. How in the world did she get into the lab? She must be a friend of the promoters or owners. 
No other explanation. And a review of an Amelie Lens record on Resident Advisor. This is easily one of the most boring techno releases to date. It's also widely known she does not make her own tracks. Her boyfriend does. She tours because of him. And her face. Obviously. Those are just the top level. As you'll hear in this episode, death threats, rape threats and violence are directed towards women in dance music every day. I didn't know if I had the emotional armour to put myself in a position where I'd be subject to vicious comments. Eventually, I felt like I could give it a go, cue two weeks of gut-wrenching nerves. When it comes to the actual show, it went really well, and I've now read all the comments, and none are bad. Hooray! But I was concerned that I'd ever felt like not putting myself up for an opportunity just because of internet trolls. I wondered if trolls are perhaps having more of an impact on electronic music culture than we realise. If young women are seeing the amount of negativity heroes like Nina Kravitz, Jada G and the Black Madonna are getting online, would that put them off ever getting into electronic music in the first place? Over the next 20 minutes, we'll look at this topic from a number of perspectives. We're going to hear from Maria Stamper, aka the Black Madonna, about slaying trolls. We'll hear from a self-identified troll over Skype, up-and-coming DJ and producer Peach on the notorious Canadian keyboard warrior who's closely followed her career so far, and Hugh here at Reza Advisor who has a role in moderating our comments section. Hugh's here. Hi. Um, so what can you tell me about the comments section of RA? How do you guys moderate what's going on in there? Well, the comments section of RA, there's no sort of one captain of that ship. It's a group effort. Um, we all use our sort of messaging services to highlight problematic comments when they come up. What we regard as a problematic comment, there's the kind of more obvious ones, which are sort of outright bigotry. That we don't see a huge amount of anymore. What I would say the bigger issue was sort of subtler bigotries um, coming through. Uh, you know, whether or not that's like someone accusing a female DJ of getting somewhere for anything else other than music and stuff like that where you know I think you could the commenter can probably make an argument in their head that they're not being a sexist person here um, but the reality of it is that you can see that it's kind of rooted in that or it might discourage other people in similar situations of, of putting themselves forward mm. so it's not always stuff that's like directly explicit that gets removed no but anything directly explicit will do um, it's mostly about trying to shape the conversations in a positive way uh, it's quite important, really, I think, that we are still a forum and we do have a forum for users to come on and either criticise or compliment people. Uh, that's pretty vital and I think most of us here, or a lot of us here, uh, come from a sort of era of the internet where forums were massively popular pre-Facebook. Uh, whether or not that was like the Errol Alkin forum or Dogs on Acid or any of these things, those were hugely influential to us. Um, and so it's something we're quite keen to be able to say we still have but it can be tricky to keep on top of it, especially when you're trying to make it an overwhelmingly positive thing. That doesn't mean there's not space for criticism. If someone wants to come on and criticise a release, criticise something we've done, criticise a party for any of these things, you know, some of that's actually really valuable. I think it's quite good that we have a space where people can give honest feedback on individual events and stuff like that. A lot of people seem to worry about uh, it being almost a form of censorship controlling your comment sections. It definitely doesn't hold water for me, that argument. Firstly, I think you've just got to really understand that we spend our entire lives, all, all working week and all our weekends on this website. Um, and so, 
to see a comment section devolve into something that doesn't stand by our values and we do as individuals and hopefully as a company really promote the values of tolerance that underpin all of dance music. To see a comment section slide into something else is, is not great and it's something that we're keen to not let happen ever. Mm. So going through the comment section, who are some of the biggest characters on the site? I mean, the big character that will always kind of dominate all of our conversations around it, or a historical character, was maybe Pro Angel Wings, who was a successful enough troll to be interviewed by Electronic Beats a few years ago. Um, he's been relatively dormant. I guess there's quite an important line to draw between the sort of funnier trolls um, and people who are just out there to sort of be negative. Like you've got James NBSP, who's about a lot at the moment. Um, whilst a lot of his comments might not be necessarily productive to a conversation, a good percentage of them make me laugh when I see them. Um, and you've got DJ Nathan, who I guess just has this kind of pseudo-naive character that he puts forward. Um, then you've got kind of notable critics as well. Um, I think Kingsland and The Elbow are good examples of people who are just like heavy critics who... I guess have a kind of anonymity about them. And then you've got uh, kind of more negative people on the sites as well. I don't know if I really want to shout out anyone for being a particularly negative person, but there are there are historically a lot of users that um, have hidden behind that cloak of anonymity to be quite outrageously even nasty or I mean we had uh, we've had users before who were just like comment like quite graphic sexual things about female artists and stuff we had actually had an example of someone uh one artist that happened to uh we didn't see the comp the comment was immediate and she was i guess reading the comments almost immediately we didn't see it and i think that really put her off even putting anything online again and to hear that you know an artist that we all collectively love and want to champion to hear that anything on our site kind of maybe put them off for a second is just it's it's just it's just quite heartbreaking and it's something that that particular one was a comment that really got us talking about how we can effectively moderate conversation on the site so what's it like being on the receiving end of such comments time to meet a young dj who's been subject to online trolling already in her blossoming career Hello, my name is Peach, aka Serena Passion. I have a new track out on Midland's new label called Integrated. I was based in Toronto, Canada, and now I've moved over to London. I've been living here for just under two years now. And I think the visionary of all the trolls, especially in Canada, is this guy named Higher Level. I mean, even when people talk about him on Twitter, for example, they'll put a star in his name so he doesn't find what, when they're writing about him. <laughs> The thing is with high level, he's pretty mysterious. No one knows who he is. I think I know people who have met him. People have said I've met him in real life, so I know he's a real person. And some people um, have made a note to the fact that he definitely has uh, mental health issues. And it's weird because he's kind of almost like known as like a rite of passage for DJs um, and artists in Toronto, like Ciel, Azarian Third. And it's interesting because he has like really old um, mixtapes that he always refers to and he's never actually released anything or like DJed out anywhere but everyone knows about him as this kind of like prolific Toronto troll. He wrote, this mix is horrible but you can't expect much from at 
Peach. She's a shabu pansy adobo fraud who started pretending to be white electronic DJ after the spring of 2006 after Put Your Hands Up for Detroit. It's smart for her to continue her career outside of Toronto and Canada because she's a known fraud who pretended to be from Toronto. Keep lying to people in other countries in Canada. You've been exposed as a fraud. You need milk. I hope you ate lactose. LOL. Wow. <laughs> yeah, the weird, weird part about it is a few things is like Pensine Adobo refers to me being Filipino and then the pretending to be white strange because my mother's white the continuing to put your hands up for Detroit he usually says that about everybody he says like oh you and he also calls them like knee pad and ketchup cakers macaroni and cheese cakers and the weirdest one about this is that he knows I'm lactose intolerant so (laughs) so what is higher levels place in the music community in Toronto Oh, just resident troll. Main troll and I think most people who have done anything musical in Toronto, if they've been made fun of high level, like you know you've you've done something. <laughs> you know you've gotten there. <laughs> but he always likes to try to take everyone down. He's just like an online presence that as soon as maybe you do a mix or maybe you've you're posting an event or something, he'll come for you on that. When you're telling me about this now, you're kind of like smiling and okay with it but was there ever a time where you felt a bit worried at all um I mean I always felt kind of weird that he knows all these facts and I think the first when actually I saw that um the one I just read out to you that kind of made me upset when I first read it because I hadn't heard from him in a long time he'd obviously made this account just to write that (laughs) and I, it made me upset because he just like keeps channeling into, he always kind of makes a note to some people's races, which I feel like is kind of sus that he's, you know, being low key, like jabs at like, that I'm Filipino and like, what does that have to do with anything to do with me and my music or how I might be a fraud, not from Toronto. It's just, but I never felt scared or discouraged. Cause I mean, he's just like, maybe if I had met him in real life, I might feel a little bit like scared or something. Would you ever be like put off from carrying on with your developing music career because of negative attention on the internet i don't think someone like him could take me down (laughs) where i think he's full of shit quite honestly and i think he's just some he obviously has i think his own sort of stuff going on like yeah and how about for the wider electronic music industry um do you think trolls shape the conversation in any way i think they they shape the conversation because i mean everyone's fucking sick of hearing from them like it's really pathetic it's it's weird because i think we live in this like day and age where like online bullying is like low-key common practice and it's not like facebook or boiler room for example or any of these people can police that kind of shit online it's just like not really possible those sort of platforms don't have any way of dealing with it and it's not like you can go to the police and be like someone's been you know harassing me on the chat room I was watching J2G's Boiler Room for Deckmantle this summer and I was in the comments literally just going after trolls and just saying like shit to piss them off because they were just like, you know, talking shit about whatever they could. And it just kind of feels like these people, I don't have anything better to do but to sit behind a computer screen and hide behind it and then talk shit about these people who are doing things successfully, especially really strong women like J2G or even like the Black Madonna or, you know, other other women in this industry that are just being I think are the brunt end of all of the trolls because like I don't think you put up a boiler room of a dude and there's and they're coming for them nearly as much I think you put up a boiler room of Jada G and they're all like oh she's so pretty and also why can't she mix or you know oh that was a bad mix and it's like it's just like if you're at home sitting at home in your computer and this girl's like DJing 
at one of the biggest festivals in the world and being broadcasted like clearly I think you have your ego hurt a little bit that you still DJ at your local bar for like five pounds and maybe a pint. Since I started researching for this piece, I've been keen to hear from a troll. Turns out a lot of them are pretty elusive. I messaged one of RA's most frequent commenters, a user named James NBSP, who Hugh mentioned earlier. And after a few weeks of mailing, we arranged a Skype call. Yeah, well, I'm James uh, from London, and I post comments on Resident Advisor as James NBSP. So far, you've posted 852 comments. Um, Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how that got so high. Just sort of stacked up. (laughs) How did you first get into posting comments on Resident Advisor? Um, I thought it was just an amazing account to, like, you know, go to nights and stuff, um, like everyone else. And I've always posted quite a lot online. Sort of grew up on 4chan, I guess. So that sort of flavoured the way that I conduct myself on the internet. I think my comments were pretty mundane until one of my friends wanted to see who could get the most downvoted comment. And I got like minus 64 for saying PC music was good, which I agree with. But yeah, that was the start. So how much time would you say that you spend commenting on RA? I don't know, like I read most of the articles on the site just because I'm interested. And then if I finish the article and I can think of something, to add, I'll put it. But mostly I just do it like when I'm bored, I like work and stuff. I just like write a comment, leave it for like an hour, come back and see what people are saying. Why do you why do you comment on the site? Why is it important to you? The comment sections are there for posting in. And uh, yeah, it's just fun to see what you come up with. And also I get quite a lot of encouragement, I'd say, um, from people that I know like in real life but also just I get quite a lot of like random comments in my inbox on RA being like oh yeah I love this comment or like keep it up or whatever so that's nice. So it's good feedback in general? Yeah yeah. Do you post on any other sites or is it just RA? Um, I know sometimes I write stuff on Facebook but that's about it. Not Mixmag or any of the others? Nah don't really read them. Wow honoured to have you. (laughs) Cool. I wanted to get your opinion on when commenting on sites like RA turns not so nice. Uh, I think you have a reputation for being generally quite positive, whereas there's obviously other people on the site who we have to stop from posting because their comments are extremely offensive. What do you think of these trolls? Well, I'd say I'm trolling as well, but just trying to be funny and not, not mean. Um, I don't know, you shouldn't do it. <laughs> it's not nice. I have occasionally posted something like bad, but it's just always really lazy, and then I feel I feel bad afterwards. And because you can't delete your comments on Resident Advisor, I wish wish I could for a couple of them. So you must read a lot of comments too. Yeah, yeah. Have you noticed women in electronic music seem to get quite a lot of shit online? I've I've always I've always posted this, um, like, and noticed that any time. There is an article about a woman, even if it's something that men do all the time, it will get like 10 times as many comments, even if it's quite a like mundane thing. And yeah, if you if you point that out, it riles people up quite a lot. I just don't want us to get to a point, especially with RA, where like 
younger women who are maybe thinking they would like to have a go at DJing or making electronic music are in a position where like they're so put off by online comments that they feel like never starting. Yeah, that's true. Um, well, I hope that doesn't happen too. My real name is Maria Stamper, and about um, two to three days a week, I'm the Black Madonna. I've been hearing that you're really great at handling trolls. Is that an accurate statement? I feel like Buffy the Vampire Slayer. <laughs> you know, once in a generation, one is born. And uh, If I am, it's only because of exposure therapy. Um, when I f first started getting... Um, unwanted online contact it was a totally devastating experience for me i was um i was blindsided and the worst part about it was that it went hand in hand with everything that i was proud of if something good happened to me and um or maybe even something that i was proud of saying um became something that entered the public domain, uh, the immediately accompanying effect was, um, I, I guess you would call them trolls, but I, I, I feel like that's like really even like too nice a word. It, it's really, it's harassment because if it happened on the street, um, if someone followed you around saying the kind of shit that they say to you on the internet and you told them to stop, in a lot of countries, you could be arrested, but uh, the laws haven't caught up in most of the world or any of the world, and online harassment and even online threats are something that we are completely incapable of dealing with culturally, and they happen to everyone, but they happen disproportionately to women, and I found that out very quickly. Mm. And do you think that particularly electronic music has a specific problem? I don't know that it's electronic music specifically, but electronic music is in the world and we're not immunized from the ailments of the world, particularly as they relate to women in the workplace. And all of the things that happen to women in the workplace in the rest of the world, from harassment to trolls, all of those things occur here. We love aesthetically to think about utopianism and there's a lot of the club as a church you know this kind of sanctimonious aggrandizement about this space that we enter and sometimes that is true in moments but there's nothing that shields us at the same time for any length of time from all of that other stuff too what would you say are the ways that online comments affect you good and bad Something I think you'll hear again and again is that 98% of the comments that I get online are positive. Um, it's very hard to remember those when someone is threatening your life. And the other 2% of the comments are straight from the mouth of hell. And I have been very blessed to have a close relationship with people that want to come see me play music um the relationships that i have with those people i have tried to keep the barrier very low and to let them into my life as much as i i can because they have let me into their lives 
and that that closeness and that intimacy um, is an important part of my own sanity <laughs> and an important part of the kind of experience that I want to have when I go to a club. I don't want to have a separation more than I have to between me and the people that are there. I'm a hugger and I want to give people my full attention when they have offered to give me theirs. The downside to that is that there have been at times periods where people knew that I was like that and that they could get to me. And um, that was extremely difficult. I had to go to therapy. My whole life I have uh, had on and off depression and anxiety, very, very serious. Um, and at the time that I kind of entered the public eye in a real way, not taking an active stance in treating those things was no longer an option because there was a point where I completely melted down and I put on a brave face, but I have had my life threatened. I have been threatened with rape. And that's one end of the spectrum, but as difficult are people just assuming terrible things about you, <laughs> saying terrible things about you. I've read utter lies about myself. I had a serial harasser. Um, I have a guy that has been, the, since I started, since I really entered the public in a pretty regular way, uh, I have somebody just from my past who has been a, a, a serial cyber stalker to the degree that I sought legal counsel and was told that it was sufficient enough between the threats that he was implying with other people and with me that the next step would be to speak to an FBI agent. So is he targeting other DJs? Other women as well. Other women in music? Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah, not just me. Um, and that's the thing that I think, and I've been so reticent to talk about this because um, to this day, uh, while I don't read his stuff much anymore, I don't really look at it, which is uh, something that we should get to at some point is just about not looking at it. I know from other people that he actively reads my press today and responds to it, whether he says my name or not or whatever, tells personal stories about me in public. All kinds of, you know, most of it, a great deal of it is even like just not even true or distorted, whatever. Um, that was hard. Th that was difficult. Um, that was really, that was hard. And the thing is, is that I know that the advice is always not to talk about it because it'll make it worse. And, in, and I, I didn't really even want to come here. I I didn't want to come here to talk about this because I know that there are some specific instances in which addressing this will make it worse. But at the same time, I want other women to know that they're not crazy. It is real. It is difficult. It is okay to seek help for it. It is okay to ask for additional security. All of those things, whatever you need to feel to feel good to the degree that you're able to. You know, somebody doesn't like my RA mix or whatever. It was divisive. I'm, I'm a divisive person and I don't, I don't care. If I wasn't divisive, then I wouldn't be very interesting. Um, 
there was a point where I started actually giving RA ratings to trolls and rating their comments in the comments section. You know, it was like one out of five. Uh, the story you're telling about me didn't actually happen. Two out of five. The joke's not really very funny. You know, whatever. And sometimes I will occasionally hit back just for my own sanity so that it doesn't feel like a one-sided thing. But that's only when it's like safe and lighthearted and, and if I genuinely don't care, which in time I have learned truly, deeply to not care about what other people think about me creatively. I really, honestly, do not care what 99% of the general public thinks about me because, you know, we just don't DJ for the comments section. The thing that's hard to shake off still is the other stuff. I don't have an easy answer for it. Mm. What are some of the ways that you have learned to protect yourself? I travel with a tour manager who is also security. <laughs> That's not an option that most people have. <laughs> um, it is a huge expense, and that's for my safety because I've had questions about whether somebody online was going to break the barrier and become a person in real life, um, that kind of thing, and it, it has happened. That has happened. I've had... I've had somebody wait for me after a show. I have an excellent management team. Um, uh, and our our rule has been sticks and stones. Uh, anything that has the possibility of sticks and stones goes to them immediately. Uh, it goes to my tour manager immediately. Um, you know, he's reading correspondence. You know, there's, there's a process. I mean, you just you develop a process. The number one tactic for me is just to not see it. And that is the one thing that I would say to women who are who are entering this field, don't let this stop you, but be aware that truly, deeply, seriously, 99% of these things you don't need to see. You don't need to see it. You don't need to respond to it. You don't need to defend yourself. You don't need to acknowledge it's not important these people are not important they have no bearing on anything the people who do read it probably don't care and the ones that do care are even less I mean you start filtering down what that what that impact is and it's almost it's almost zero I would say unless your safety is in question or unless you just feel like jabbing back which you know my management team hates it when I do it <laughs> I get yelled at <laughs> but I you know I got to do it every once in a while especially when somebody's really dumb there's a certain pleasure to the occasional troll slang <laughs> a pleasure too sweet not to indulge in every you know a little blood sport but uh for the most part I just ignore them and because they uh that's what they want. Yeah. What would you say to a casual online commenter who perhaps doesn't realize the impact of a throwaway comment? Breaking news, women are human beings and uh, we are complete humans. And I th think that there are a lot of people that believe that just because they love their wives or daughters or mothers or sisters or people that bear some kind of relationship to them that's beneficial or emotional in a kind of natural biological way that 
that they're automatically afforded the right to say that they respect women in general. And I don't believe that that is true. I believe that, that in, in general, we live in a human culture that has dehumanized, that has dehumanized women to the extent that we fail to recognize the complete humanity of people that are not immediately related to us. And the internet makes it very easy to, to check out of the consequences of that dehumanization. And I was guilty of that before when I was younger. I would talk mad shit on the internet and not think anything about it. And never, never question for a second the impact that that could have, not just on women, but on other people in general. Um, and, and one thing I want to say, especially to women, and I think that this is so important, and this is a thing that has got to be said, which is that some of the worst stuff I've gotten has been from other women. Really? Oh, for sure. Wow. And um, that's a tough one. And I thought I was alone, but I have spoken privately with other women, and we have some introspection to do um, in terms of how we manage our own internalized misogyny. And um, we have some introspection that we need to do in terms of how we manage even just differences of opinion. Even when we have a problem to resolve, are we coming at each other from a place of love and the hope for resolution? Or are we scoring points to move up the ladder? Because taking off somebody's head on the internet is a real good way to get a whole bunch of attention. And I myself have a rule that I pretty much don't criticize other women in dance music on the internet because I find that a lot of times men will charge through a door that has been left open by other women. And the next thing you know, it's this bitch, this hoe, this whatever. And we don't need to give, we don't need to give anybody the keys to that door. We as, as women, and particularly where marginalized women are the case, even when we disagree with each other and we may disagree, you know, strongly, as I have with many of my peers, we must find ways to be more tribally in defense of one another um, so as not to afford an opening for other kinds of attacks which cause damage not just to us but to the movement in general and to women trying to enter this workplace. We must be stewards of this and not be contributing to a hostile environment that makes women not want to show up in the first place. And to answer the thing that you, you were saying before about is there a chilling effect? Does this culture, does this thing that happens to women on the internet, is there a chilling effect in dance music? Absolutely. There's no question. I have talked to women who just over and over and over again, the ones of us who have even hung in there, have just wanted to hang it up. You know, there there were days where I, my husband I had to drag me out of bed. And I am not alone in this. I'm not. And and it's it's the thing that nobody wants to talk about, but it's the absolute truth and and the environment's got to change. I think that we have more control over what's acceptable in our culture than than we're willing to take responsibility for. I'm really grateful Maria shared her story with me. Our conversation was insightful, shocking at points, but overall incredibly encouraging and filled me with a good energy. 
especially the way she's able to articulate everything she's experienced. I had one last question. What would your message be to a girl who's curious to try working in electronic music but feels cautious? Hang in there, it really does get better. Honest to God, two years ago, I was really, really struggling and now I'm not. And it's not because anything changed. If anything, I get more shit on the internet now than I used to. But I changed and the wonderful upside to this is that if you can come through the other side, and truly learn to not sweat what is not important, then you will gain something uh, immeasurably important, which is legit self-esteem. And I think a lot of times self-esteem gets very mixed up with everybody else's esteem. Self-esteem really, truly is that. Once you come through the other side and have made a decision about your own intrinsic value as a human being and the right of your art and, and the importance of your art to exist, the importance of your story, the importance of your narrative, no matter who doesn't like it. Once you have decided that you have a right to be on this planet and you have a right to make it funkier, then nobody on this earth can take that from you. And that is something that it took me 40 years to get to that point to not feel like, well, maybe that thing that DJ such and such said about me really is maybe true. Or I just really wish so-and-so liked this. Well, they don't, but I do. And that is what really truly matters. And once you get to that point, you're totally unfuckwithable. make or perform dance music in 2018, there's a good chance you're using Ableton Live. A new version of the software was released this month with Ableton saying they wanted to remove the barriers between the musician and the music. So how did they try to achieve this? And how do they go about designing something like the new Wavetable synth that comes with Live 10? RA tech writer Graham Bateman spoke with Dylan Wood, Ableton's product owner for sound, to hear the inside story. My name is Dylan Wood and I'm the product owner for sound at Ableton and I was also heavily involved in running the Live 10 project. First question is, how long ago did you begin planning Live 10? Some of the planning for Live 10 started as soon as Live 9 came out. At the same time, quite a lot of things happened in the last year or year and a half before the release as well. So uh, it's kind of been constantly in mind and plans always change shape as you go along as well. Does the overall direction for the update emerge over time or do you have a preconceived goal before beginning the process? A little bit of both. Um, so most of the direction for Live 10 kind of emerged in the last year and a half or so. Um, some of the research on certain topics had started a long time before that. So uh, for Wavetable particularly, and musical beat detection stuff that's in Capture. Some of that research had been ongoing for a few years, so it kind of gave us some directions we would be going, but we're always kind of looking at uh, what users are doing with the software at the time as well. So it's not too preconceived, it's a mix of both, I suppose. 
how much chance and experimentation comes into play during the development process? I know you have the events you do. Uh, we do hex sprints every, around every 12 weeks or so. We kind of encourage ideas and, and uh, ideas for changes and features come from a lot of the teams and the developers working on the software as well. So many of the staff are musicians themselves, so they either have ideas of a problem they'd like to solve for people, or we also spend a lot of time either visiting musicians or sort of trying to interact with them in various online ways. So lots of those ideas come from those conversations. One person is maybe not a musician and someone else on staff is and they talk about something and an idea might come from that, that kind of thing. How closely do you analyse the behaviour of uh, hardware when developing new software devices and instruments? Um, quite a lot. We look at a lot of hardware and software. We don't generally shoot for like a one-to-one -one emulation of a piece of hardware. I know there's a lot of like plugins and things that are like a photorealistic copy of a particular piece of hardware. Um, for Echo particularly, like we looked at a lot of different hardware pieces but then didn't really emulate any one of them. We were looking more at like their defining characteristics or what makes them special, not sort of blindly just modelling the exact behaviour of a certain piece of hardware. Um, pedal got a bit deeper into modelling like actual circuit topographies of different guitar pedals. Um, like different pedals often have the same circuit but with different values for the resistors and capacitors and stuff and you can get quite a different sound out of the same circuit. So with that one we were like modelling down at a circuit level and um, really working out the um, topography but then tweaking the values to taste so that it kind of fitted into, into the live effects chain in the way that we wanted it to. Yeah. So yeah, we look at hardware and software a lot for inspiration, but then we try and distill it down into something that's kind of done the Ableton way, I suppose, is the best way to describe it. Yeah. And how much does do CPU limitations affect how deeply you can go into these yeah, uh, it's emulations? Always, it's always a big challenge, that one. So uh, especially when you're doing analog circuit modeling, which is what Pedal is based on, basically you can model the behavior down to such a detail that it will use all of your CPU all the time just to do one simple thing. So you're trying to find a balance between something that's mathematically correct and something that's sonically correct. So the mathematically perfect model wouldn't run in real time on your computer. So you're always looking at which bits of the behavior you really need to model to make the thing sound authentic. Um, something like Wavetable, for example, is um, a really complicated, well not complicated, but it's a fairly deep synthesizer. So it has audio rate modulation and um, the oscillators are doing some pretty complicated stuff. So it's always a balance to get the like the big sound and all the real-time capabilities that everyone wants, but keep the CPU reasonable. We, With Wavetable specifically, we went for the quality of sound first, and then we're just always looking for ways to optimize it. Um, we use uh, spectral IFFT-based oscillators for the playback so that they don't alias and they keep the CPU load fairly stable, but they're still really high quality, so it is a pretty heavy-duty synthesizer as well. And speaking of Wavetable, what was the um, sort of the main imp impetus for wanting to build this synth, like a new synth from the ground up, basically? Um, well, we hadn't built an Ableton instrument for a long time, um, and so Wavetable, in terms of the idea has been around for years, I think, and we'd done explorations even four or five years ago into like a new synthesizer for live. It evolved quite a lot. We prototyped it over many years and it went through lots of different iterations before we kind of settled on what we shipped in Live 10. Um, so the impetus came from wanting to do a new flagship synthesizer for live and then it kind of went through a few iterations in terms of how we thought we could put that together before we settled on Wavetable. Yeah. Was it so? It, was it always going to be 
an FM wavetable synth or were there other options on the table for um, there's been other options on the table, definitely. We're more focused on the kinds of sounds we wanted people to be able to make, more so than the synthesis method. So we looked at the kind of um, modern but expressive sounds was kind of the motivator. So we probably could have done that with um, uh, or Wavetable, obviously, or Additive, or maybe even some of it could have been maybe done with Granular. But we settled on Wavetable synthesis as the one that, was, that gave us the broadest... Um, uh, range of sounds within the within what we were looking at yeah so we kind of used a lot of musical references like looked at a bunch of music and said if you wanted to make these kinds of sounds live doesn't have an instrument for that what could we build that would give you those kinds of sounds sure it's a very visual instrument there's a lot of visual feedback was that what were the main reasons behind wanting to do that compared to something like operator which is quite uh Titan very like control based for Live Nine Point Five with which came out with Push Two we it kind of exploded the simpler device which is the sampler that powers a lot of the slicing and stuff in Push and we found that um, blowing it out so that you could have it in the breakout and in the control area meant that you could see everything all at once and this was quite a nice workflow so we had the idea to try that with Wavetable none of the other instruments except for Simpler do that um, and. We also kind of wanted to avoid many menus and tabs and stuff. So those two kind of ideas combined um, meant that we could, uh, we prototyped the idea of having this breakout view that Wavetable has, and then we worked on it until we were able to get all of the controls on screen at the same time. And the idea was to make it easy to navigate and kind of easy to see what you were doing with the sound while you were working. And also you didn't have to think too hard about what you wanted to do next because it's all kind of right in front of you at the same time. Um, so the, the oscillator visualizations are there to help you understand the different um, like uh, oscillator effects that are going on because the visualization helps you tell what's happening. Also for a wavetable, the visualization gives you some idea of the timbre that you're going to get out of the oscillator. And then the rest of it, like the um, spreading it out all over the screen, was really about the programming workflow. So you didn't have to think too hard when you're programming it. Like it's pretty deep, but you can kind of see everything at the same time. So it's quite approachable, I suppose. And is this approach of um, using the, the breakout feature, is that something that you may potentially expand on in future? Yeah, there's definitely a lot of advantages to it. So we obviously haven't um, gone back and done that for some of the older devices, but uh, like for something like Operator, it would be great to be able to get all the controls at the same time, but uh, not something we've got to just quite yet. Sticking with visualizations, uh, you added a lot of things to push to in terms of um, what you can actually see on the display. Did that kind of come about through the wavetable thing? Or? It was a little bit of both. So the desire to have the compression visualization and the spectrum for EQ8 on the screen is just, those are pretty fundamental mixing um, activities is using the spectrum and the, and the compression. So being able to see that on push just meant that when you were mixing with it, you didn't have to look up at the computer as much. So the primary motivation came from this idea of just keeping like if you get into the flow with push and, and you're not looking at your laptop, you can kind of lose yourself in it. And we wanted to take that a bit further than we had before. Um, so that was kind of the desire to get this like, so the EQ8 work actually got us to get this like real-time feedback coming down to the screen. And then once we had that basic piece working, then we were able to think about doing similar things for Wavetable and Echo and stuff because we'd sort of built the infrastructure that let us do that. But it was the same thing with Wavetable and Echo. It's like they're really fun, creative uh, devices and we wanted people to be able to stay in the hardware so echo has the visualization wavetable has visualization but it's also got all of the um 
modulation matrix stuff is accessible from push as well so we built some new interactions for that too and the idea was that you didn't have to turn around to the computer to program the synth you can sit there on the push and program everything from the front panel was it a challenge to map these um, software changes onto a pre-existing piece of hardware i mean push is pretty open with the bank system and stuff um it is always a challenge to find a way to represent software on hardware like software by nature is so open-ended and can do like a million things and then a hardware always has a certain number of knobs and so without reverting to like lots of menu diving and stuff it can be really challenging to take something quite complex and present it on on a, on a more limited piece of hardware but um, for wavetable and things we thought about the push we thought about how it would work on push very early on so while we were developing the set of features, we were also developing how it would work on the hardware at the same time. Um, yeah, so it's a bit of a mixture. Sometimes you just kind of go down a path of what's the right feature for the thing, and then you work out how to put it on the hardware. But as much as possible, we kind of try and think about both perspectives at the same time while we're while we're building the instrument or the effect. It's it's not just how will this work in live. It's like how will this work in live, and how will this feel on the hardware. Engineers, designers and uh, team leaders all come from different backgrounds and prioritise things differently. Um, is everyone essentially editing each other's work in order to come to a happy medium? Usually the way we try and think about it is the first thing we do is build like a shared understanding of what we're trying to do in the first place. And so often if like a designer, an engineer or like a product type person are looking at a problem, they're looking at it from different um, perspectives. Like how can we build this to make it work or is this what people want or how can we design it to feel like it's part of live these kinds of different perspectives so usually what we try and do rather than sort of step on each other and edit each other's work is we try and build early on a fairly shared picture about like who we're building something for what constraints or design considerations we have in mind and like what technical uh, challenges we might have to overcome so we try and do that quite early on so that while we're working we have to there's a bit less stepping on each other's toes or something I suppose. One of the developers who worked on the echo delay effect said that the team tends to always think about how to avoid adding more features when working on new ideas. Uh, why is keeping things simple important? Well um, when you're working with software the by nature it's somewhat unlimited and so the tendency is to add everything that you can possibly add to something. Um, if it's too complicated it's hard to master and hard to approach and hard to understand. So um, I guess if you take the cues from like classic pieces of hardware and stuff, a lot of the really popular vintage synthesizers and stuff or drum machines have got very simple user interfaces, like there's not that many controls. And so you can kind of, it's limited, but you can master it and really understand what's happening. And so it's not about keeping things simple for the sake of it, but usually it's, if you can find an elegant solution, usually you don't have to add as much stuff to get the same capabilities. So sometimes it's trying to figure out how to let it do a particular thing without adding more controls or without just slapping on more things to, to do that. Um, yeah, I don't know if I quite answered the question, but the idea is to keep it that you can make it deep enough, but make it so that you can master it and you can kind of understand everything that it's doing while you're using it. And if you've got too many controls, you just lose track and can't figure out what's going on. With that in mind, how many sort of revisions or drafts would uh, an instrument or an effect go through? Um, before arriving at the version they use in the release? I, I couldn't honestly say, but probably hundreds. I don't know. Like Some of the uh, effects that we have in Live 10 have been kicking around as like Max for Live prototypes for several years, and they've gone through so many minor revisions and changes and, 
you know things like that anything from like the way the dsp works to like how to present the knobs and what kind of control range so they kind of usually it takes like after a certain while it settles on a certain feature set and at that point after then you're kind of more refining how those features that are there work but there's usually quite a long period at the start maybe six to 12 months where it's like constantly changing and potentially changing quite significantly before you kind of settle on a like a direction or like a, 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 a identity for the thing that you're working on. How do advances in the world of coding and um, software development in the years between major updates alter the scope of what's been possible with Live 10? So Live is built on C++ and not so much has changed there. So in many ways um, the biggest challenges are biggest challenges actually are like OS compatibility so the biggest moving target is like Apple OS's and Windows OS's because they um, either deprecate certain APIs or break certain functionality sometimes or sometimes they just have bugs that you have to work around on different versions so usually with live um, it's mostly about making sure that when you run it on a modern computer and a modern OS that it behaves the way you want um, and that is just more about keeping on top of those changes as they happen. Um, we're always updating the code base, um, but most of Live, as I said, is, is like real-time C++. So advances in sort of web technology and things like that don't really have so much impact on the way that you do like real-time audio software. The Loop conference has been going on for two years now. Have your experiences there influenced the ethos guiding the development process? I don't know if it's it's influenced the ethos so much but what it's certainly been is a, a really amazing opportunity to connect with lots of really interesting and creative people so i think as i said earlier we you know go on field trips and talk to people and observe them making music and loop is like a really large collection of very interesting and creative people all in one place so what usually happens is most of the team from Ableton is at loop as well and in the middle of it and attending talks and or giving talks or meeting people in the hallways and talking to them about all sorts of things so it's usually a pretty inspiring time so I don't think it changes our ethos for live because the ethos is really about giving dedicated and creative musicians the things that they need it's more of a chance for us to talk to those people in person uh, and maybe people that wouldn't we wouldn't normally get to visit that's it for this month's show thanks for listening the owl will return next month with another blend of documentaries discussion interviews and lots of other things besides <laughs> <laughs>